This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let me start with this, and it goes back to yesterday and the World Cup of Soccer. And I wasn't bracing for this. Um, We've gone from sort of like lousy story about the World Cup to, okay, let's get a little bit excited about it. Like, for example, a month ago, the games were announced and the, the time of day and how many games each city would get. So this is a massive undertaking. And just so you know, I won't go too sportsy on you here, I promise. But the World Cup's expanding out from 32 games to 48. But those 48 teams are all going to get a guaranteed three games in, in like a group stage. You get plucked in with three other teams. Y'all play each other. And then 32 teams out of those 48 advance. But this is spread out all over North America. Most of the, the venues that are hosting World Cup games are NFL stadiums. And to me, as I call it, it's pack and play. Go into Miami where the Dolphins play or Kansas City where the Chiefs play, and you got a stadium that's all set to go. There's still going to be costs involved, and FIFA, the governing body of soccer, um, takes a good chunk off the top. They're not the mafia, <laughs> but they're not all that different. Okay, So when you go into these stadiums, understand that your, your profits are kind of sliced as it is. Okay, it's not like the Leafs being able to print money at at, uh, at Scotiabank Arena when they have a home game or the New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden. It's a little different than that. So let's compound that, the fact that most of these stadiums are just playing ready to go. 70,000 seats. Yeah, tweak them. You'll tweak your stadium a little bit, and there's extra for security and fan parks. It's not your normal sporting event. Not at all. It's the biggest sporting event on the planet, bar none, and it lasts five weeks. But in Toronto... We're kind of, I got to be honest here, we're that proverbial, sorry if you're redheaded, sorry if you're a stepchild, but we're that compared to these other stadiums. That's who we are in this mix of of all these other stadiums that are ready to go. Why is that? 30,000 seats is what BMO Field holds, which is the right mix, by the way, for the CFL team to play there. There's not a lot of demand for the CFL. Um, It's not an NFL team. And you can expand it out for a gray cup. They had the uh, big Red Wings Maple Leafs outdoor game there seven years ago. And they built a lot of stands on scaffolding. I don't know how safe people felt with the wind blowing off uh, Lake Ontario, but that's what it is. So a lot of money needs to go to expand BMO Field from 30000 to 46000 And there's two theories of thought here before I play you what Olivia Chow said about this yesterday. One is, well, we won't get good games. Well, we won't get decisive games late in the tournament, that's for sure. Most of these knockout games are going to these massive stadiums like SoFi in L.A. or Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City, where Taylor Swift uh, knows every uh, every corridor and every uh, every sweet door location. Um, but we, we, we might get really good games, depending on the draw. You could get a fantastic matchup. It's all kind of randomized in those early group stages, as they call it. But we still have to build the infrastructure for a stadium that really doesn't do much after the tournament's over. It's tens of millions of dollars extra for hopefully a bit of a tourist boom subsequently. And I don't want to underestimate that. And I'll get to that part in just a minute or two. But yesterday, uh, Olivia Chow, the mayor of Toronto, was in Ottawa. And I think she was kind of confronted here by the knowledge that the World Cup was going to cost a lot more. Now, two things. If she didn't know this already from the city report from a week and a half ago, this got into the mainstream media yesterday. You should be more involved. You're juggling a lot of balls if you're the mayor of a big city like Toronto. 
but you should know this already. So in case the media comes to you and says, what about these exploding costs? An extra $80 million. What do you think about this? You got to have better answers than she had yesterday. And the second part is, if you know already, and these are your answers, that's probably even more concerning. She was asked by a reporter yesterday about the exploding costs for this tournament. To host the FIFA bid, it also means that many of the immigrants that have arrived to Toronto or have been in Toronto, um, they would love to cheer on their most favorite uh, teams. Hopefully it's Toronto or Canada. But um, uh, that's why Toronto is uh, very well suited to host the World Cup because we are most diverse city in the world and we live harmoniously. Okay, listen, that's not a good answer. Let's rewind the tape. Like, I got five problems with that particular answer. And not even mentioning the cost isn't even one of those concerns. Forget the, uh, it, it's really easy to dunk on the answer. No, no, cities don't play in the World Cup, Mayor Chow. Countries do. So nobody will be cheering for Toronto specifically. No one's, we're not trying to get the games and, and trying to sell ourselves to, to the bid. It's already here. And by the way, there's nothing anybody can do about it. I've heard people say, cancel, that isn't going to happen. MLSE, the company that owns the Leafs and Raptors and Toronto FC at, and the Argos, etc., wants these games to happen really badly. Why? Well, they made actually a really smart deal, and I'm not going to criticize their deal for kind of, you know, I wouldn't say swindling, but they worked the city over here. John Tory, one of his negative legacies will be this deal. There isn't any question about that. There's no oversight. City councilors didn't know about it. This deal was signed with city staff. The city, this deal got signed before any commitment of federal money, which still hasn't happened, and provincial money, which is, you know, percentage points on what the actual cost is going to be. And I don't blame the province. Why should the province bail? The province has been doing a lot of bailing the city of Toronto out. And you might say that's their job. But at the same time, um, that's, a bad, that's a bad start for the mayor to explain what's happening with this tournament. Then somebody puts the question to her, wait a minute, why has this price tag moved up? from around $295 million to $380 million, not for the whole tournament, for the city itself. The extra cost is uh, caused by the rate of inflation. Everything has gone up dramatically. I make sure that amount is reflected in the budget because it wasn't before. Also, uh, we're hosting an extra game. So uh, we will uh, invite the federal government, uh, which because they signed a bid, they uh, are responsible for about 35% of the cost. We invite them to contribute and they're committed to, uh, to supporting the bid. Okay, let me step in. That's not true. And I don't know if she knows that's not true or not, but let's, for the sake of argument, say she doesn't know that that's not true. The federal government didn't sign anything. They can give some rubber stamp approval, but this was the city's deal negotiated with Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. I've seen documents involved in the deal, and I think I've seen documents that other people haven't necessarily. Federal government has nothing to do with this. So that's a batty, daffy, dippy answer. That's not right that, that the federal government is responsible for 30, uh, close to 35%. They're responsible for 0% if they want to be. Why? because they didn't get pen put to paper on this particular situation. Look, I think this is an important tournament. I'm going to make the case 
that you can't tangibly count what this does on the world stage for Toronto. I just documented before six o'clock, by the way, real concerns with how coverage of Toronto is in other places. Do you think it's good or bad for tourism that the New York Times read worldwide has a headline on the weekend for car thieves? Toronto is a candy store and drivers are fed up. You know, it's more bad than good. We just can't tangibly estimate how much. The exposure with tens of millions of people watching each of these matches, and it doesn't matter if Romania plays Croatia or Italy plays England. By the way, if you don't know soccer, the second game, the second matchup's a lot more appealing. And you could get that in a group stage game in Toronto. Okay, They can't just take a good game and decide to plunk it into the, the, the stadium that's a lot more ready with higher attendance. That's not the way this thing works. But I will tell you, those are really concerning comments from a mayor that I don't think can put a good face on this tournament. It's not about knowing sports. It's about being honest and logical about this process here. It is considerably concerning that that ends up being the case. Uh, If you've got thoughts on what I just said, 416-870-6400, via text. And I ask that because I think the juice will be worth the squeeze If you put the right people in front, I'll also make the point MLSE is getting a new president in Keith Pelly. Keith Pelly has been president of the Argos. He was a uh, boss's boss's boss for me at Rogers Sportsnet. And I will tell you, they're getting the right guy to put a face on this. He may be able to ride in on a white horse and be front facing here because I don't know who at city council is going to be. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I watched this yesterday at two o'clock. Um, you know how sometimes people are uh, this university and colleges uh, news conference with the colleges and universities minister, Jill Dunlop. She's in the Ford government. That's her, her portfolio. And there's two ways to look at what's exploded in terms of colleges and universities. One, there's what I think we'd call an international student crisis in that, and it's happened more at the collegiate level, but universities and colleges have relied on international students paying a lot more tuition. The average tuition for you to go to school, if you were in Ontario or even in Quebec, to come here and go to a school like McMaster in Hamilton or Wilfrid Laurier in Kitchener is $8,700. That's your first year tuition. The average university student from from another country, their tuition is more like $23,000 on the average. So you're almost like jacking it up three times. What the federal government has done, let's focus on what they're doing now as opposed to what they didn't do. Let's deal in the present. The federal government has said we will cap visas. We're going to limit the amount of visas that we give out for students. And the universities themselves and the colleges especially are saying, wait a minute, we're really underfunded right now. We're not getting the proper amount of money from governments. We count on that international student money to pay the bills. But right now, the spotlight's kind of turning to those schools saying, is there anything else you're being excessive about? Anything in administration costs? I had a university administrator reach out to me last night, just sent me a direct message on Twitter and said, this is, this is almost like detective-esque, but he's like, Listen to your segment yesterday talking about this. He listened on Think Tank yesterday, uh, which we had Anna Bailao and Anthony Fury on at 7.30. And he said, you're on the right track. You're asking the wrong questions. 
And I never heard from him again. <laughs> so I'm hoping he'll follow up today and explain what the wrong questions are about this particular situation. But yesterday I watched the news conference. It's about 20 minutes long with the colleges and universities minister, Jill Dunlop. It went um, rather poorly. Um, they've kind of been hiding her. And this happens now and then with the cabinet ministers where you're like, oh, that federal liberal cabinet minister doesn't do a lot of media or news conferences. I wonder why. Well, they're not terribly good at being front facing. And front facing is something we were just talking about it with Olivia Chow in the World Cup by saying, can you can is, there's got to be a reason that they are not out there and, and very prominent. And Jill Dunlop proved yesterday why indeed that's the case. This is a question she got asked. This was her very first question after making an announcement. And the announcement was about we're giving $1.3 billion to these colleges and universities who are saying that they're struggling for, for finances. They're struggling to make ends meet. They're losing money, not making money. Again, it seems impossible that that's the case when they're not dwindling in terms of enrollment numbers. The demand for going to universities has not gone down. It's been up. Here's some of the exchange yesterday with the colleges and universities minister, Jill Dunlop. Quite the change of tone. You went from saying that you were going to work hand in hand with the government on this file, and now you're talking about it being a unilateral decision and quite disruptive. So yes or no, do you disagree with the government, the federal government's decision to cap uh, international students? Well, thank you very much for the question. And absolutely, the decision was made by the federal government was a unilateral decision with absolutely no consultation with the provinces or the sector. That's not an answer. Do you have a list of, was that a yes or a no? Thank you very much for the question. As I said, I've been very disturbed by the lack of consultation the, the federal government has made. Absolutely no consultation with the provinces, with the sector, but we are working with the sector and I will be responding to the directive that is made by the federal government before the March 31st deadline. We're off to a rollicking start. Who is, by the way, that's not an answer guy? That's really bold. The very first Q&A with a minister that you never see, you never hear on the radio. She never does media. And, and this has been a really important file. If you're wondering, hey, you know, maybe that's just a, just a, just to stretching out her verbal muscles and the brain doesn't, doesn't sometimes work with the mouth. I'm the first person to admit that. And you listen and you know that that's true on a regular basis. Um, no, it didn't get better. One of the things the Blue Ribbon panel talked about was a longer view of funding. You're just talking about a one-time cash infusion over three years. So where's the discussion going after these three years? Is there any talk at this point about what happens at the end to make sure that colleges, universities aren't coming cap in hand to Queen's Park after that? Well, thank you very much for the question. And today's announcement is a historic investment of $1.3 billion in post-secondary. We want to give schools the sustainability, the predictability in their, as they plan their, their path forward. But we're not doing this on the backs of students. We are going to ensure tuition is frozen for an additional three years so that students have access to post-secondary education in this province. Okay, so we're still having a bit of a struggle here. Um, there's a lot of thank you very much for the question. We're really not getting to the crux of the issue here, and that's moving forward with the federal government. And I get it. it it's, it's very, there's an element of it inside baseball to it. And I think parents are relieved at least. They don't care how Jill Dunlop sounds. They care that their kids aren't paying more tuition. I got that part of it. But if, if you went to college or university in Ontario, or you're sending your kid there, and you see that this is the minister responsible for it, 
you don't have a ton of confidence that the right scenarios can come up. You'd almost think, by the way, she said later in the news conference that she and the labor minister have requested a meeting with the federal minister about international students for months and it was denied. But a federal source says that's not true. The officers have been talking. And if you couldn't get a meeting with the federal government, why wouldn't you tell people that? Why wouldn't you be a little more vocal about that? You'd want people to know that you've been you know, working on the file. It's your file and nobody else's. You'd want the public to know about that. The federal liberals have made a big mess here with visas being granted, but I'm not sure anyone buys uh, Dunlop's tale. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, Dr. Phil McGraw is known as Dr. Phil. Um, ironic that the one name uh, Oprah, we don't even talk about the Winfrey name as much, Oprah found Phil and put um, him on her show on a pretty regular basis. Yesterday, he came to The View and was on the show. And um, he took some uh, hits a little bit for his opinion on pandemic school closures. But he pushed back. And um, there wasn't much pushback after the pushback from the hosts of The View. Listen to him be challenged here. Um, and I, I won't just say it because it's true. But listen to what Whoopi Goldberg, who kind of quarterbacks the whole thing, tries to get in a 68 year old uh, non-parent. It is worth bringing that up. I think the pandemic school closures just are going to hit differently if you've got kids in your own household. Here's some of that exchange. Listen to the audience as well. Cheer the guest instead of the hosts. This is unusual for this show. Here it is. And COVID hits 10 years later. And the same agencies that knew that are the agencies that shut down the schools for two years. Who does that? Who takes away the support system for these children? Who takes them away and shuts it down? And by the way, when they shut it down, they stopped the mandated reporters from being able to see children that were being abused and sexually molested. And in fact, sent them home and abandoned them to their abusers with no way to watch, and referrals dropped 50 to 60%. So, there was also a yeah. pandemic yeah, going was, They were trying to save They were trying to save kids' well. lives. Remember, we know a lot of folks who died during this. So it wasn't, people weren't laying Not around eating children. bond, but, well, you know what? We're lucky. Maybe we're lucky they didn't because we kept them out of the 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 places that they could be sick because no one wanted to believe we had an issue. Are you saying no school children died of COVID? I'm saying it was the safest group. They were the less vulnerable group, and they suffered and will suffer more from the mismanagement of COVID than they will from the exposure to COVID. And that's not an opinion. That's a fact. That's a whole level of respect for, uh, for Dr. Phil McGraw there. That's a voice of truth. Um, that's been impressive. Everybody will point and say, oh, did he speak out at the time? Yeah, by fall of 2020, he did. And I think by fall of 2020, turning the corner into early 21, you started to realize that the uh, the cure, if you will, might be worse uh, than the disease. And schools and businesses had all these fears of uh, liability. No matter what policy was instituted, there was a risk that these entities grappled with. I got all that. This was a, a human tragedy. We all worked our way through but it was also a political failure and nobody said enough. And there's these uh, hosts of The View still just no data whatsoever. There was a pandemic going on. Yes, exactly. We know that. And uh, the kids were ravaged by some of the restrictions we put on them during said pandemic. All right. I want to get to uh, April Engelberg. Uh, she's a Toronto lawyer and joins us now. We love going into uh, city council issues and issues within the city with her. Good morning, April. 
Good morning, Greg. How are yeah, you doing? I'm really good. Nice to have you on. Um, this We were talking about it at the top of the hour and got a lot of interesting texts and reaction. It's the easiest thing in the world to look at World Cup costs going up for this tournament um, two summers from now, $300 million to $380 million. And, uh, and I think there's so much there that is worth biting at. What do you see in the story and the new data you heard about yesterday? Great question. So we were chatting about it, you and I, yesterday. And the thing that really doesn't make sense is it's like, oh, well, it's because there's going to be a sixth game. You know, this budget was for five games. But as you pointed out, it's like, well, we were told a lot of this money was to go to actually building infrastructure. So it really doesn't make sense that there's an additional $80 million. And just to tie it back to the op-ed that I wrote about how Taylor Swift coming to Toronto for six shows is significantly uh, more beneficial to our economy than the World Cup, this is it's just, you know, more and more true Uh each month, apparently, like this is just a terrible deal. And another major issue is, you know, how we signed and we didn't have any uh, commitments from the provincial or federal government. And then recently we were, in my opinion, falsely rejoicing because Mm -hmm. the province said they would kick in 97 million, two problems. One, they said they would only do that if the federal government also kicks in. And then two, Uh, They're now saying that's it. Like, we're not adjusting anymore. And to be honest, fair enough. Right. So as of now, we're actually still on the hook for the entire three hundred and eighty million dollars. Well, and there's Uh, and and there's not much you're right. And there's not much legacy to um, to the games themselves because it's simply expanding a stadium. And that expansion will only be for those six matches. So when you host the Pan Am Games, when Toronto hosts the Pan Am Games in 2015, facilities were built, housing was built to to house the athletes for a time that was then converted into full-time housing after. There'll be none of that two summers from now. Yes, and also very importantly, which I've been trying to emphasize, it's not like we're the only host. There are so many hosts. Yeah. So this whole idea that like we're on the world stage and everyone's watching us, everyone's watching a lot of places. So that tourist and benefit really is not the same as it would be if we were the sole host, to say the very least. Uh, this got brought up in the House of Commons yesterday as to how hard times are, and especially in our major cities. But the idea of dumpster diving, there was a story in the Toronto Star about it in terms of food rescuing. But um, people are very protective of these spaces and people are finding ways and means around going to the grocery store, and they're finding food that others are throwing out, aren't they? Yes, I really liked uh, Francine's article in The Star, and because I had also seen there's a whole like TikTok uh, community, I guess, of people that are dumpster diving. And it just shows a really good point. Like, why is so much food, literally, that is very much edible going in dumpsters? And I don't mean like, oh, a couple things. I mean... If you watch these videos, it's literally crazy what they find in the dumpsters and an extreme shame that that's not going to feed, for example, our homeless population or that it's not at our food banks. And I don't want to say that's 100 percent of the case, because in the article it says, for example, Metro makes sure that they freeze everything immediately and get it to a to a charity. So I don't I don't know that every single grocery store is totally failing at this. Um, And also importantly, as you said, the dumpster divers won't reveal their location. I think it's because if they 
do, then I'm guessing it becomes more difficult for them to get the food. And I think there's, yeah, there's, yeah. yeah, there's two interesting things there. One is some of the people that save the food are, are selling it almost like, like everybody probably remembers buying or selling things on something like Craigslist or Kijiji. They're taking the food they find April and they're, they're selling it so they can use transit or fill up their, their gas tank. Like they're being really innovative about this, but again, we got to look in the mirror and wonder how it came to this in the first place. Yes. And it says some people are selling it, but a lot of them are either like using it for themselves or even more so just distributing it to people that need it. And that's awesome. But it, it's really crazy that, you know, grocery prices are so high. We at the same time, we have so many people relying on food banks at the same time. We have so many people living in homeless shelters. And then there's just, you know, citizens that are going and getting the food. Like That shouldn't be the case. It should not be put in dumpsters. You spotted a, a story as well that um, I think is at least a good story for Toronto, and it's all about um, helping out the water um, in Lake Ontario and fishing some of the plastic out of it. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Ports Toronto has partnered with U of T, and I've actually seen this in action back in the day when I was you know, touring all parts of the ward when I was running for mm-hmm. city council. But they have basically these like robotic uh uh, water waste collectors. So they just kind of sit around the harbor and eat plastic. Uh, and it's pretty cool. It's like a Roomba for the water is basically how I could put that it. That right? is the best way to describe okay. it. <laughs> that, is, that is a good one. Yes. And it's insane. Just like, I think it was like 62,000 pieces or like they, they collect a lot. Um, and it's really great. And I think it's a great example of the waterfront community is really well functioning. Like there's the waterfront BIA, there's waterfront Toronto, there's ports Toronto. And it's just a very clean, well-run area. Like you'll see someone out like at all times sweeping up garbage. Um, so I, I like it a lot. It, and and it's, it is one of those things as well, where it doesn't necessarily negate the value of either, either business or retail or eventually all these homes that are going to be built by the waterfront, which we need the waterfront LRT for. But, it, you know, it is it is notable um, when you walk by that area. That was the biggest issue with Ontario Place and people saying, well, we just can't leave Ontario Place as is, April, because when you look in the water and you jog by or you're waiting in line to get into a Bud Stage concert, you look down and you're like, the water should look better. It's kind of garbagey. Yeah, it's a great use of space. And also there's a lot more to come. Uh, in that area, obviously, with the redevelopment of the Portlands. And uh, it's going to be exciting to see what happens in the future, especially once we get the Eglinton East LRT. Yeah, it's one of those good news stories. Uh, Eglinton East LRT, I meant waterfront. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they'll all hopefully get built on time and for the exact cost that the city said they would get built for, April. You know that. (laughs) Thanks for for being thanks for being on this morning. Thanks, Greg. Have a good day. There's April Engelberg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We want to save people's health and save people money and save our healthcare system. And we can do all those things by giving people access to universal pharmacare. We want to start with contraceptives and diabetic medication. And we want to go from there and expand to cover everybody for all their needs. We can do this. That's what New Democrats believe in. We're up against liberals who continue to be out of touch to drag their feet and make promises and then break them, and conservatives who are too close to Big Pharma and are not going to ever make this happen. Okay, a deal got done Friday afternoon and a lot of uh, talk about it over the weekend. The Liberals and NDP still have those reasons to work together as they push into the calendar year of 2024. 
And uh, as I said before, you know, when you've got political leverage, uh, ultimately you have to use it. There'd be a ton of criticism if that wasn't the case. I think that would be the case in your private business to, you know, it's an opportunity. I wouldn't say taking advantage, which sounds like that has negative connotations to it. But you take advantage of the circumstances around you, do the best you can for the people that voted for you. And ultimately, you see where that agreement goes. Um, agreements like this aren't aren't flawless. This has been in place almost two calendar years. That was the voice of Jugmeet Singh, the federal leader of the New Democratic Party, and he joins us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on, and I appreciate you making the time. My honor to be on. Thanks for having me again. Well, I, I lay that out there. Is is leverage a fair word? Could you have got this done without leverage with the federal liberals to get a pharmacare deal done? Not at all. You're absolutely right. It, it, is, uh, it is exactly the, the mentality that we had. We've got a certain power, and there's a tradition of New Democrats. Whenever New Democrats have been in power, have had that type of leverage on a minority government, that's where we've seen pretty much all the social programs that we we have in our country, whether we're talking about our healthcare system or EI or pensions. These are all things that New Democrats fought for in minority government and brought in. So similarly, we used our power to bring in dental care, which is already helping hundreds of thousands of people. And now we use that same power to help out people when it comes to the cost of medication. We know that one in four Canadians does not fill out the prescription because it's too costly. They either skip their pills or just don't fill out the prescription. And we all know what happens when people don't take the medication they need to stay healthy. They get more and more sick. And when someone gets really sick, they're up in the, in the hospital, in the emergency room. So we know that this is not just going to save people money. It's also going to help our healthcare system to make sure it functions so people don't get too sick and end up overburdening the emergency room for things that could have been prevented. Do you look and say, some people have made the point, there's diabetic medication and there's certainly uh, birth control medication um, that is covered here. Are these the first two steps of, of sort of a, a, a multifaceted plan with ph- Pharmacare? Yeah, that's exactly it. So we wanted to show not only what we had negotiated and fought for was just to lay the foundation legally with the legislation. And we wanted to go beyond that. So we saw an opportunity when we were forcing the laws to, to try to meet the deadline. They missed it. And we said, we're going to try to push for more to get something concrete into to people's lives. And so then we thought, let's, let's actually show proof of concept. We can get this done. And we fought for these two classes of drugs to be covered. What it means for people is going to be they're going to go into a pharmacy with their prescription and they're going to be able to get their diabetes medication. They're going to be able to get birth control. This is life-changing for people. For folks I've already spoken to who spend thousands of dollars on their diabetes medication and equipment to keep them healthy, it is a huge burden. It means they sometimes don't leave the jobs that they might want to leave. They sometimes don't have the means to do so and know that they're putting their life at risk, their health at risk, but they just can't afford it. This gives so many people, millions of Canadians, that sense of hope that they can actually afford to stay healthy. They can afford their medication, and, and we're proud to be able to do that. Do you look at the entire healthcare system, Jugmead, and you say, I'm reading more and more. The Canadian Medical Association has been the latest to say, we need to shuffle the deck. We need to rethink why emergency rooms are bursting at the seams or why we don't have enough doctors and nurses. And that may be about the system as opposed to the spending on the system. I I brought this up with you before. There's a lot of Western European countries that have figured out some form of balance. And I know I don't think people shrivel up the way they used to when we talk about two tier. 
we already have two tier health care. We really do. We just don't call it as such. Is there any look and any need to look over the next decade or so at something other countries are doing that that is that's not putting them in the situations that Canadians are in? Well, I would say uh, this is something where I'm in a very firm position, and and I I do it for many reasons. When I look at the for prof care, the evidence is so overwhelming that I, I reject it outright because for profit care is costly. We know that, and we see that evidence, and it just makes sense. If you've got a factor in profit, it costs more to deliver that care. And we've seen that in BC where private clinics were actually brought back into the public system because it was costing them more to spend money on someone going to a private clinic, which was charging them extra to factor in the profit. So they actually took in, in BC, the, the government bought uh, private clinics and made them public so that they didn't have to actually have that extra cost of the private clinic. The other thing that happens when you go for private care, people who have gone and will tell you this, you end up spending money out of pocket. No matter what they say, even if the government says, oh, we're going to cover your service, we're just going to send you to this private clinic, what happens is you get upsold and you end up spending money out of pocket. So it costs you more and then it costs the system more. And then the final thing is the outcomes are worth. Look at countries like America that spend the most money on private and public combined healthcare, and the outcomes are actually worse. You're getting less quality overall care. So I really believe in public system. But that's why we're looking at pharmacare, that part of the problems are we're the only country in the world that has a healthcare system that's universal, that doesn't include medication. That's some of the learnings I want to take in. Every other country has figured out. You go to a doctor, your doctor is covered by your healthcare system, but the doctor prescribes you to take medication to stay healthy, and you can't afford that. It really renders that visit kind of not really making a lot of sense if you can't do what the doctor's telling you to do. So that's something we really believe in. We know that if you starve the system, it's not going to work. So we got to make sure it's properly funded. Yeah, I, I hear all that with, uh, with with America, and I lived there for 10 years, and you're right. They, the baseline is is not good enough. Too many people fall through the cracks. I do think there are countries that utilize universal health care, um, and they have private not-for-profit health care. Um, and, and there's a way Germany spends 9.6% of their GDP on health care. We spend almost 13%, and at least you get choice. You know there's people that leave our system, drive to the state so their son can get a knee surgery or their grandfather parents can get a shoulder surgery like we got a lot of dollars thousands of it on a regular basis leaving our provinces because people can have choice and get things done faster well i know that that's that's happening and i think that's a symptom of of really an outcome that's been determined if we are underfunding a system uh, the federal government's been dropping the funding over years it's been coming down uh, provinces are having to do uh, more because there's an increased population more demand aging population with less. And then, the, and then pl- people clearly say, well, the system's not working. Well, it is not working because of very specific things, the underfunding. And we also need to address specific challenges. People have brought up saying that we don't have enough healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, or frontline healthcare workers. There's also a, a number of problems where the, the, there's a contracting out of nurses and other healthcare workers who get paid more uh, being contracted out than the permanent mm. regular staff at the hospital. Those things are the problems, the, the right. understaffing, the underfunding. And when you underfund a program, actually it's not gonna work. It's not, mm. if people are gonna say, well, it's not working, I'm gonna need another alternative. We properly fund it, we have the right number of staff in place, and we have things like pharmacare so people don't get more and more sick because they couldn't afford the medication they were prescribed. 
when they went to the doctor visit, which is covered by our healthcare system. These are some of the fixes that will improve our health care. Jagmeet Singh is our guest, uh, federal leader of the New Democrats on Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Last thing I'll give you is this new online harms bill. Um, I want to get your feel for it. I, I, I bet you many of our listeners don't understand all the nuances of it. And there's a lot of noise about it. Um, here's the problem. I, I think there's terrible things on the Internet we have to protect people from. Revenge porn would be one thing that we need to police much, much better. But Jagmeet, I think you concur, and I think you've been you've been critical of the liberals here sometimes. Sometimes they they I, I, they don't people don't trust the liberals to do this without stifling criticism of them and their policies. I'm hearing that from constituents everywhere across Ontario. How do you view this bill, and and does it have some good and some things you don't love? Uh, well, I would say first off, uh, the specific focus of the bill has to be uh, online harm to kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that is the focus. That's something that I think there's no question we need to protect our kids. There is so much going on that is harming kids online. Kids are hurting themselves, being exploited. Uh, there's serious challenges. And social media companies won't tackle this on their own. They haven't, and they're just not going to do it. There has to be a level of protection put in place for kids online. And that, for that, I, I absolutely support it. My concern is the Liberals promised to do this within 100 days of being elected. We're at 800 days. So... That, that neglect or ignoring this problem has meant kids have been harmed that could have been saved or protected or, or, or these things could have been prevented. So uh, that's my big concern. I want to see uh, legislation that clearly protects kids with that focus. And I don't understand the critique coming from conservatives who would rather, it seems like, protect Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, these billionaire social media giants, rather than protect kids online. Like I think that is something very straightforward. And yeah, we've got to keep a very careful eye on the liberals to make sure it's done the right way. Yeah, but I, the vision around making sure kids are protected, I have absolute. I mean, for parents and for kids, I absolutely believe in that. I I got you there, and uh, and it, I think it's the definition of hate speech, right? Like it's used by so many. This is hateful. The, these are hateful words. And I, I, I worry sometimes that we'll, we'll, we're not able to flag enough harmful content. But to, to your point and to my point, who defines the hate? That's a, that's a question I think a lot of people will have about this for adults, adults on adults. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, the uh, hate speech, uh, we'll, we'll put that to the side. The online harm, uh, what I, what I want to see is online harm, specifically online harm related to children. That is unequivocal. That I, I, I think we can all agree kids should be safe from, from exploitation, from exploitation, which is going on, from uh, some of the, the bullying, the, the cyber bullying, kids that are end up hurting yeah. themselves because of what's going on online. That is very clear. It's not about hate, but keeping kids safe. That's something I think we should be unequivocal about. And then in terms of how we keep our platforms safe from, from purposely hateful messages that are, that are sending out uh, inciting violence against people. I mean, there's certain things I think we can come to an agreement that is inciting violence against other yeah. groups because of what they look like. That's something that we all agree shouldn't be happening. And then I think we should start there, start where we agree, and then we can work towards 
making sure we've got good legislation. Hear that. Jagmeet Singh, uh, federal leader of the NDP. Thank you for the time this morning on our show. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, when it comes to colleges and universities, uh, yesterday was quite the day yesterday with a Jill Dunlop news conference that everybody had an opinion on. She's Ontario's Minister of Colleges and Universities. But some great digging by our Queen's Park Bureau chief has dug deeper into the story of why there is a tuition freeze for the next three years at least for Ontario students. Colin DeMello is that Queen's Park Bureau Chief, and he joins us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Hey, good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me. Well, there's really some uh, some intrigue to this, and I wonder if um, if the opposition leaders, whether it's uh, Ms. Crombie or Ms. Stiles, will make anything of this, but tell us what you were able to find out. Yeah, so back in December, I mean, a lot of this conversation has been ongoing since the, the government received its Blue Ribbon Panel report in November of 2023. And ever since then, the government has been trying to figure out exactly what to do. It seems like the Ministry of Colleges and Universities was willing to take the uh, Blue Ribbon Panel report on its face. Right, the Blue Ribbon Panel had recommended increasing tuition by about 10% over about three years. What the Ford government was looking at, at least the Ministry of Colleges and Universities was looking at, it was increasing tuition by about 5% over three years for domestic students here in Ontario. They also recommended a higher increase for Canadian students outside of the province. Ultimately, mm-hmm. though, there was an effort inside to kind of convince the premier because it was the premier who seemed to be internally reluctant uh, to want to put this kind of a price on students who have been, uh, you know, obviously they, they pay a lot for tuition as it is uh, in this province. And so there was an internal effort to try to convince the premier. But in late January, the premier was at a news conference. And as he was up at the podium, he was asked about increases in tuition. And the premier flat out said, no, we're not increasing tuition. And internally, I've been told that was met with some surprise because a decision had not been made yet formally. And the premier had kind of shut it down both privately and publicly now. And, you know, sources tell me that they were kind of all shocked, taken aback, essentially saying, oh, I guess I guess this is the policy that we're going with. And so eventually, when it came to the cabinet table sometime last week, the increase in tuition was left off of the uh, official recommendations, and they stayed with the Ministry of Colleges and Universities. And what we saw yesterday was what was ultimately approved. Yeah, it's really something like it may have been an off the cuff comment. But to your point, then they end up uh, sticking with it. And um, and he shuts down what would look to be um, some mobilization anyway to consider that tuition raise for all kids, including those in Ontario. Well, and it would have been a half measure, right? It would have been somewhere of a compromise, a meeting in the middle, uh, rather than going with a 0% increase, and rather than going with a 10% increase, they found a way to kind of make it a little bit more gentle, 3% in the first year, and then, uh, you know, a couple of other percentage points in year two and year three to make up a total of 5%. Uh, the, 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 the documents that we obtained also say how much it would have cost. In the first year, it would have cost college students an extra $151 and it would have cost university students about $242. This is in the first year alone with the 3% increase. Uh, but it would have brought in, over the course of three years, some $345 million for the post-secondary sector. So that, that isn't obviously a lot. It's not going to cure. It wouldn't have cured all of their ails. But definitely it would have helped put some extra money into their coffers uh, to help deal with what is 
looking like a bit of a crisis for some of them. And Colin, before you go, I think it's been general applause. I haven't heard any hefty criticism towards uh, making kids from out of province pay a little bit more. It's 5%. If you're around nine grand tuition, that's about $450 a year. So if you're applying from Quebec or the Maritimes or the Western provinces and you want to come to Ontario for school, it's just a little bit more, but that may add up. Uh, it, it's not Quebec. Uh, obviously, Quebec uh, put huge um, uh, levies in, in terms of tuition increases on on uh, Concordia and McGill, and they felt it when those applications came in. They got a lot fewer than they, they had previously. Yeah, I mean, so if you are uh, – what I find to be interesting was the Minister of Colleges and Universities yesterday said, look, we're in an affordability crisis. We're not going to put uh, all of this on the backs of students. But – what she didn't say was which students, right? If you're mm. a student from Ontario, uh, the government isn't going to charge you anything extra on tuition. But if you're a student from, you know, Alberta, uh, British Columbia, Quebec, etc., the province is going to charge you increased amounts for tuition. For those Canadian students from out of province, uh, they could be charged 5% this coming year, another 5% next year, and another 5% increase the year after that for a total of 15%. So the the post-secondary institutions will be able to make some money. But again, it, it, it really goes to show you that they're balancing their books on two types of people, right? Those who come from outside of Ontario and those who come from outside of the country. It's just the domestic students in this province who don't have to pay extra. Mm. It's great digging on the story, Colin. Thanks so much for the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Colin DeMello joining us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Um, we've talked about the, uh, the academic staff uh, before. And it's just this simple. Um, I referenced this yesterday. I'm going to do it again. You go to University of Toronto's um, Wikipedia page. There's 44,000 undergrads at U of T. There's 3,246 academic staff. There's 7,462 administrators. You need some administrators. Do you need more than double the admin that you have for the academic staff? Like, not in a single possible solitary guess would I have ever said that and I bet you you wouldn't either do you need an administrative staff for every six undergrad students again it's a really intriguing question here